0: Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders and we get to share their wisdom and perspective on life and leadership and I get to ask all about women in leadership. Today I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Josephine Sukar to The Conversation. So lovely to have you here Josephine. Thank you for having me I'm looking forward to the chat lovely so let me share um, for people who haven't met you before um, some of your background just and then we'll get into our conversation so josephine is principal of bill corp and serves on a number of private public government and not-for-profit boards including the washington h soul pattinson and company limited growth point properties australia the australian museum green building council of australia Centenary Institute of Medical Research and the Bill Corp Foundation. She's president of Australian Women's Rugby and through Corp, has been a major sponsor of rugby in Australia for over 30 years. In 2021, Josephine was appointed chair of the Australian Sports Commission. She's a fellow of the University of Sydney and in 2017 was recognised for her services to the community, the arts and sports in the Queen's Honours birthday list. Josephine, very lucky to have you join us today. For people in the audience who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, would you tell us who you are as a human being? And let's get into your story. Thanks, Melissa. Um,
1: I'll always describe myself as a family woman first. I um, am from a very close family. Um, I am a wife, a mother and a daughter and my family and what's important to them guides and us guides really every decision that I make. Uh, whether it's professionally or, um, you know, personally or for fun. We tend to make decisions as a family together and I continue to do that now. My children have grown up and moved out of home and even, you know, really interesting board appointments or things that I would consider. I'll always sit down and do with um, consider with my husband and family. And um, it just means that we're all uh, pointing in the same direction. I feel that they're the best people to know what I might best be suited to, what I uh, would be less suited to and we seek each other's counsel, and um, I'll always say family is at at the heart of everything I do.
0: Fantastic. You have got such a varied portfolio of interests. I really want to understand, you know, your background. Where did that – it's so varied. Where did that sort of come from?
1: sort of evolved, I think, like most do. I trained – I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left school, but I quite enjoyed maths and science. I really had no idea. I did a science degree and I um, completed an honours year at the Garvin Institute in uh, Physiology and Pharmacology, which was really interesting, and um, found myself on one of the holidays I had there. I took a three-week job on a construction site that needed a bit of a hand with, um, you know, some admin. I can't remember exactly what the role was, uh, thinking that I'd go along and do that for three weeks. My husband's a builder, and um, that three-week job I don't know, I'm in mean, construction. I don't know what that is. I've got a big birthday this year and I was 21 then. So, yeah, what's that, 39 years later? Gosh. Wow. There it is. Yeah, yeah. So here we are. Um, and, I, look, I've loved the sector. I arrived somewhere into a sector where I I didn't have any expectations of it. I didn't really know many builders. I just I knew it was somewhere where there were a lot of men. And um, I just turned up and found... Uh, happy men um gosh when I think back then they used to drink grappa at nine in the morning and get on power tools and smoking while using oxyacetylene. I mean I just when I think about it now I can't believe we all didn't die on sites but you know and then we wonder why there had to be a a strong union movement around um and then but look it's been a sector that's brought me great joy and I have found myself Sometimes having to defend it because we don't have any women who are interested in um, studying construction management as a degree civil engineering. There's a really narrow pipeline for that. Mm. Um, and, but I did assume that because there were mostly men in construction, it must be the most sexist, the most, you know, hard to access, the most difficult place for women to be. But then I found myself in other parts of corporate Australia and realised that no, we're actually, probably much better than a lot. Uh, so I'm happy to talk about that a bit later. but. Um, you know, I've, I've ended up over the years being invited to boards and committees, and um, I have realised in hindsight, looking back, I'm somebody who's pretty open-minded to I'll sit and listen to opportunities. And I would argue that what my degree actually did for me, while I don't work in medical research anymore, it equipped me with what we now call a STEM skill set. That wasn't even a word then. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a way of approaching Uh, problems I've realised now I'm quite analytical and technical in how I like to view things and some of that I've um, embraced and has helped me, others I've had to try and undo a bit because I do have a hard wiring to try and jam information into an Excel spreadsheet and try and, you know, get evidence-based where sometimes in life it's not quite like that. Being on an arts board uh, was one of the best educations that I had to undo some of that, you know, to create some nuance and put some risk into um, how I think about things. But look, every board that I've been involved in, um, I would argue I'm not remotely qualified. or haven't been to, to participating, but once I'm there, I look around and go, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. And uh, so it's been open-minded to that.
0: I love that. I want to explore that with you as well. Um, so, okay, lots of areas for us to explore in. You know that I'm very passionate around seeing more females in CEO roles broadly And I saw an interview that you did actually. You interviewed Maurice Payne at one stage on International Women's Day, I think last year. And you were talking about um, together about you can't be what you can't see. Um, Tell me about the construction sector and tell me what you wish, you know, with this narrow pipeline coming in, how do we encourage more females into that sector as well?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So I was staring into this for years, of course, and um, realizing that. At the end of the day, if the pipeline of, you know, if we would post a job for a, a site supervisor at BuildCorp, Corp, it would be very rare that a single woman would apply for that role. And I'd say that's the case today still. It would be so unlikely. Mm. The same way if I posted a job for a, a HR professional, a HR business partner, it would be pretty unlikely a man would apply. Um, not as unlikely as, you know, a yeah. site supervision construction role. So clearly there was a pipeline issue. So. We sat down and I uh, um, approached a school that is near where I live, um, spoke to them about can I bring you some women from BuildCorp and maybe can we speak to some of your girls about some of the careers that might be possible for them in construction and I'm really happy to provide mentoring and, you know, we're all here. Um, We're just about to head off and start, you know, embarking on educating young women and careers advisors on roles in construction I realized that gosh this is one school (laughs) we're trying to move it dial big time we're never going to get scale and reach trying to pick off one school at a time at the time I was on um, a diversity committee for the property council of Australia and I spoke to the then um, CEO of the New South Wales division a lady called Jane Fitzgerald and I said to her here's a challenge I'm staring into as a builder we just don't have women applying like it's not that when they're not. They're just not applying and studying in the in the numbers that we need to have real change. And this is what I've tried to do with this school, and I've realised that I'm not going to get scale here either. And um, she said, "Josephine, I used to work in the Department of Education, and I might be able to help you." And she introduced me to four school principals of four girls' schools, and she came. She came to a meeting that Jane and I and there were one or two others of us. And we explained to the principals the problem that we were staring into as a sector and why that was a problem for our sector. Clearly there was no diversity of those. So if you think about buildings, yes. as many women as men live in buildings and not having them participate at every level, it's a bit like coders, right? You know, as many women as men use um, iPhones and apps, et cetera, but we don't have ma- very many women coding. So it was really a desire to make sure that we had women at every level to ensure that what we were all going to be living in we had some input into and um and how having that lack of diversity of thought you know we, we don't even know we don't know we had no idea what we were missing out on so with that these four women were amazing these principles and they said okay so you'd need to uh, be speaking to girls in year 10 mm-hmm. and we said here are the things that we can offer them do you think that'd be good? So. And I'd also worked as a high school teacher for um, a couple of years, so I understood that to be jamming more things into very busy curricula for teachers was really not helpful. But I said, we're really happy to fit in with your curriculum because it would be great if the girls could do a project. For example, one of the projects they did was designing a school for um, a largely Indigenous uh, student group in the inner city, a little postage stamp block, so they did a project. But it it fed into, um, and there are a number of choices, um, something they would have had to do anyway to satisfy this. So it wasn't another thing. It was just it had a construction bent on it. Um, Centre Group took the bid into, uh, you know, a Westfield store and they set up these amazing stands where there were young women and men. You know, some were in shop fitting, some were in design, some were in, um, you know, construction and all real estate sales. And we, we showed them the broad raft of careers there. I went to Barangaroo, saw a great example in Sydney, saw a great example of town planning. It was relatively new then, what it was and what it is. We finished it up with a big lunch and we recognised that there were other people we had to influence as well, not just the girls, because if, you know, if the daughters went home after the week and said, I think I want to be a builder, I had this great experience and mum and dad went, no, I've walked past construction sites and those I'm not having any daughter of mine. So who were the influencers as well as? the the young women and of course it was parents and careers advisors so um we tried really hard to you know where we couldn't interview them. big lunch i was on a 900 people i was on a panel with I can't even remember who now talking about what we were hoping to achieve and um, the metric we didn't even know to look for when we were surveying the girls after to say how did you find her would you consider a career etc etc um came to us A number of months later when same Jane Fitzgerald said that one or two of the principals had reached out to her and said they had had to, they were timetabling for year 11 the next year Mm -hmm. and had to put on extra extension maths classes. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So um, that sort of back to if you can't be, you can't see it. If you can't see it, you can't be it, I beg your pardon. And um, what we did was expose them for a week to women um, in different sectors that they wouldn't have seen, like I had never seen, and um, hopefully shift the thinking a bit. So that was a pilot that now runs all around Australia um, from all the Property Council um, Australia divisions there. So it's um, that was a satisfying one. But, you know, that's a long game. Yes. Uh, the short game, what can we do, you know, in the middle? And, and the short game is where are there, and I'd say this for anywhere in any business or sport or wherever we are, are there structural barriers to the fair and equal participation of everybody, everybody, not just women? If, you, if you're in HR or if you're in your preschool teachers, are there structural barriers to the participation of young men, yes. um, of young women in construction? You, so um, jobs of people like me are to make sure that if they're there to get rid of them. Um, and sometimes it's, uh, you know, a structural thing. Sometimes it's a people thing. And um, that's my job, to make sure they're not there and then it's up to women to decide what they want to do and 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 do I think that we'll ever be at a stage where there'll be I don't know as many or more women building than men I don't know possibly not you know I I have the same discussion around male nurses or male preschool teachers do I ever think there'll be a time where there'll be more men teaching in you know daycare providers than there'll be women maybe not Mm -hmm. but um, we just want to make sure that there are no barriers to the participation and that Young people know that that there are also there's a whole other world. When I look at my world now, I knew nothing about the industry that I've spent so long in Mm -hmm. and um, I just want everybody to have the same opportunity I did because you just never know um, where your happy place might be.
0: You made a comment earlier, which I'd love to pick up on, around, you know, your perception initially that the industry being so male-dominated might be more sort of, you know, sexist than other industries and yet you found that it potentially wasn't. What was that? What sort of?
1: Well, in a, um, I always felt so, you know, I hear, <laughs> look, I, I started on sites in 1985. The world was a different place yeah. when I was applying for jobs. Then you'd go in Sydney, you'd go to the back of the Sun, which was the local tabloid paper, and there were job advertisements in there that you applied for, and they were divided into jobs for men and boys and women and girls. And I wow. to the women and girls ones, and I did temp work all the way through uni. Um, I was a receptionist at Brambles. I was, you know, because there would never be a job like that over here for men. That was just the time. So. Um, when I say, did I think it was terrible? It was no different to how the world was. Yes, so that was the world. Right? So the world was like that. Yeah. Um, but I've always kind of run my own game and sort of stayed quite forward-focused. At w- what am I here to do? You know, I'm here to work hard and do a good job. And what other people choose to do in the workplace at home, it's really not a matter for me unless it's affecting my ability to deliver on my job. Yes, um, I've heard. Uh, but I never, ever experienced, and I was on a number of sites. Um, women say there, there wasn't a toilet for women. there were toilets for, <laughs> there were toilets mm. for women, there wasn't a, of course there were. And I, and i I suppose someone like me today, um, when I am addressing young women about careers and work, I do try to I would never try and cover up anything terrible that happened, but there are some people who in the same on the same construction site or in the same office will hear a conversation or see a circumstance and walk away with two different perspectives. You know, one woman will go, it was amazing. You know, all the men, they're always made sure that I try. and, and others will go, can you believe he opened the door for me? Like as if I can't open my own door or I didn't have enough. But I- So it's a mindset. My mindset is, I've realised, is very different to the negative mindset that I do hear sometimes that I think is, um, must be really um, dispiriting to young women wanting to enter sectors that might be, look a little bit um, harder to be in, particularly if things have changed since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, so for someone like me trying to um, encourage women to think outside of some of the regular things that, you know, on the sea you you can't cover up um, bad behaviour and say, come along here, you'll be safe and fine if they're not. It's, the workplace isn't the way it was in 85. Yeah. But I can tell you I felt safe and I was fine and it was actually... Um, such a joy. I stayed, and I said to my husband, do, "Do we want to set up a construction company one day?" It was just so lovely. Um, the men were so kind and good to me. There were nearly all men um, until we would go back up to head office in Australia Square. Um, we were working at Landlease, Civil and Civic, and um, where there were of course receptionists, and there were women in typing pools and HR, and, uh, but mostly on sites. I didn't see any women on sites on the jobs I was on, um, but I didn't expect to see women. No, I don't know. I didn't go in you know where the women and where the ladies and but there were toilets and there were yeah, it's just strange to me that um the way I hear some those times we characterized now um because it's certainly not like that now. Mm-hmm. Um, are there people who always behave well um in a workplace anyway no, and is are we ever going to make everybody behave well in the future so everyone can have a great time at work? No, that's the human condition. You can focus on those that small number of people who can be noisy, <clears throat> excuse me, and make their issues your issue, mm. or you can go that's their issue, they'll manage and deal with that as they will, but me here's where I want to go, and here's my land, and that's what I did and i um as I said, I do get a little bit discouraged sometimes when I hear senior leaders reflect back on. <sighs> there's a boys club all yeah and there's a girls club and there are places where we don't welcome men and there are places where we don't I I don't know what to say or do about that Um, I am responsible for what I control and how I show up every day as a leader and how other people choose to do that is a matter for them and if, if I can encourage any young woman or man to think about you know where you want to go and and um, how you get there is as important as, you know, uh, what you need to get there. People are watching. And then all of a sudden, like me, you'll start to get tapped for roles that you never imagined yourself in. Mm. Uh, and that, that's certainly what happened to me. I, I just didn't go. I feel like some people look for things to be angry about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I sit here in Australia going, I just feel like we're in the luckiest country in the world. You know, if, if work isn't school. You don't yeah. have to be at the workplace that's got the terrible culture you talk about. Now, some people say, oh, you know, it's easy for you to say, um, just leave your job, Josephine. Well, I'm sorry, today, if you can fog a mirror, you can get a job. You know, right? if you pick it, my job's were Kentucky Fried Chicken, waitressing in a Mexican restaurant, working a market stall. Um, I've always been able to find work. Um, I, I, you know, I, I just had a very different approach to I, I know when and how to be satisfied healthy family great country lucky to be you know people pay their taxes in this country and and you get access to medicare and what have you know so i just feel i've got a different mindset I, i've realized that that i thought that was everyone's mindset and then i realized once i began to get asked to speak on these panels and that at the phone of go. wall there are people who have genuine things they need to be worried about but you know my parents were born in lebanon yes. um you want to see a country where you're up against it there's that i sit and listen to issues here and you know and i see incredibly brave women and men coming out of afghanistan at the moment and nations where they've really been up against it who are so optimistic and grateful to be here and don't hang on to stuff they um you know you're lucky if you can let go of stuff right but they just go you know how can i make my best way here how can i work hard and be part of this community put my head down and um and then work their way through with their friends and family some of the psychological and emotional things they deal with but they don't use it as an excuse
0: so I love the the message I hear in there around the agency that we've all got to leave if you're in one of those situations that's not great and all those sorts of things. I, um, I want to ask you, um, you know, you talked about getting offered these opportunities along the way. I've got a couple of questions about that. Did you put your hand up for any of them? Um so they were all offered to you. And that's that's interesting. Um okay, so let's go there firstly. These opportunities came along and they were offered to you. Um and for anyone on the podcast, Josephine nodded a no that or shook a head no when I asked. Oh, it. sorry, I beg your pardon. I'm another it um, most people will see it visually, but for those that don't, I want to ask you, you said earlier that you thought I never was qualified for these things when they came along, which we often hear that message, but you you took them. You took them anyway. Tell me about that decision-making process and that step, or the first one, the hardest one.
1: Yeah, look, I I should go back and say I never put my hands up for them. So when I had my children, I really wanted to be at home with them when they were little. That was something that was important to me. Mm -hmm. And and I was at home for six years, and I loved that time. And then when they were at school, I was that parent who I worked part-time but I was the one who put my hand up for everything, tuck shop duty, you know, class parent, that was me. I was that woman. And I loved it. And where I saw there was something that I could perhaps help correct. So um, I might be the school needed a, you know, a piece of equipment or um, gosh, I can even remember raising money one year uh, for my son's school for an ice machine. Um, for the <laughs> rugby players and, you know, carry on. Anyway, uh, whatever it was, well, oh, that should be pretty easy to do. So you put on a morning tea or host a dinner or et cetera. So I've always been solutions focused. So, well, I can probably help there. Let's see what I can do. So committee putting my hand up for things like that was uh, something I did put my hand up to do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that you'd argue that's almost quite selfish because that would uh, give my own children um, you know an opportunity to be somewhere where they had as much um, support that they uh, get in that that was I'd argue that was almost a selfish thing I like people um, I I'm, I find it easy to organize pick the phone up to strangers and go do you want to come along to a lunch or a dinner let's get behind this so I think that's my hard wiring but I was at dinner one evening speaking to a woman about a a, a client actually uh, it was a client a client of Tony's and Uh, his wife and we were having a lovely dinner together and she was a lady who was a bit older than me and she was chairing a not-for-profit organization and I must have been sharing with her some fundraiser that I had just hosted Mm. at the school and she contacted me and said would you consider coming on a dinner committee an organizing committee for a um, this charity the YWCA that she was the CEO of and um and she walked me through it and I said, okay, I'm kind of happy to help. And you turn up with these things with a whole bunch of women that I'd never met before and uh, watched uh, this event roll out and it was pretty impressive. For the next year um, I co-chaired the event. It was a, quite a large one. Rachel Ward and Brian Brown, the actors, were involved with it heavily. And I worked really hard there and uh, within a year or so I was invited to join the board and I can remember saying to this woman, and I always call her out, Jocelyn Murphy, um, she was a she's a wise uh, woman who at that stage was a grandmother. And she said to me, yeah, um, I'd like you to consider, you know, joining this board. And I can remember thinking so hard about it and heading uh, home. And that afternoon I had a chat with a lovely neighbor of mine who was an old lady in her late 90s. And I said to her, Somebody asked me to be on a board today in Min. And she said, um, Oh, what are you gonna do about it? I said, Well, I've never been a director before, so I've probably got to say no to that. And she said, but all these people who have been who are directors now, when they were first asked to join a board and they weren't directors, do you reckon they said no? Yes. And she sort of held a mirror up to my own self talk about I won't know how to do that. She lived yeah. to be 101. Her name was Minnie Perlman. She was beautiful. She had, Her daughter went on to become the Chief magistrate of the Land and Environment Court, Marla Perlman, and Minnie was a great um, source of counsel and advice, That wise old woman, you know, to me. And... Um, I started on a journey of, you know, not-for-profit uh, board directorships and then uh, became, you know, led that board with another lady and uh, a little bit more of that. Then one day when my children finished school, somebody who was watching me um, at a rugby club that we're involved with and sponsor Sydney Uni, who'd been watching Tony and I build a business and raise a family, uh, the youngest had just finished her HSC and this gentleman, Bruce Corlett, um, who was the chair of a listed board at the time, rang me to say, I want to have a conversation with you about um, considering coming onto this board. Mm-hmm. And again, in my mind, I'm like, I've never done that before and I don't know anything about financial services and how would I even know what to uh, do. But he was he um, was a safe place for me to be, you know, on a journey to start that um, that process. So that was my first listed board and, and then we are off.
0: Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. Um, I love I love how generous you are calling out all these wonderful people that have supported and encouraged you along the way. And it's no surprise that, you know, Minnie's daughter went on to do wonderful things with with the lovely questioning um, of Minnie in that regard as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I'd love to ask about sport. You know, I I am lucky to get a chance to speak to a number of leaders in sport from time to time and also athletes who sometimes, you know, I occasionally mentor athletes as well um, through the Minerva Network. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's a sport can lead the whole diversity space and can lead so many important conversations for us. Can you talk about how you got into sport? My understanding is you weren't necessarily sporty as a kid. Not remotely,
1: <laughs> remotely. And, uh, and you know, and I, you know, my father was a public servant. He he was a doctor, but he ran public hospitals. He was medical superintendent of hospitals. Well, certainly when I was growing up, he later went into private practice. But um, you know, we were four kids, and and there wasn't a lot of money. Um, but I thought it was, it was funny. I said to someone the other day, I thought we were really rich when we were growing up. so I got to uni, and then I realised, oh. <laughs> you know I went to public schools and I um and my mother certainly didn't have um time or means to be able to get us sports on weekends and music lessons and all that was, uh, that didn't happen after us that said I just thought we had everything which we did right back to a new end to be satisfied and um I hadn't been exposed to sport, and it wasn't something I actively sought either, right? just You don't know what you don't know. But my father was the club doctor for some big rugby league teams here in Sydney and Canberra and was mad about sport. You know, we were one of those typical Australian households where there was always cricket on in the background in summer, and he'd take us to rugby league, and that was how I was raised. And I met my husband, um, who at the time was a first-grade rugby union player. And he asked me to come out and watch him one day when we were engaged. And I'd been watching him on television, the ABC used to televise it, shoot Shield, they call it here in Sydney, the um, Sydney Rugby Union competition. And I'd watched a few matches there and um, I had my dad go with me. Dad went to Sydney Uni and played there. I said, I don't know Sydney Uni. So we went out and watched Tony play and um, it was fun. I met some lovely people with him. Um, He spoke about how he thought Rugby Union and being part of a high-performing team helped shape him as a leader and a team player. Mm. And we often spoke about um, his leadership of our business now. He's a managing director of Build Corp. how he felt that he sport was a safe place for him to learn those behavioural competencies mm. that are absolutely transferable into life, whether it's professional life or personal life. And so with that in, you know, we began our business, Build BuildCorp, in 1990 and in 1992 he said, I really want to give back to, um, he played most of his rugby at, at West Rugby Club and he, the final year was at Sydney Uni and he really resonated with the culture of the place and the uh, players and people who were there and he said, I'd love to um, maybe sponsor the club. I don't really know what to do. We didn't have much money. We were starting out. And we also thought it would be a good thing Brand new business. No one knew who we were. Um, let's get into this sponsorship thing, but he really wanted it to be at Sydney Uni. Um, so, you know, there began a partnership and we used to go down, because we were going down anyway to most home games and watching the matches because we you know, developed friends there and we just enjoy it. Um, we'd had children by that stage. I used to love having kids with me. They'd run around rolling up and down hills and getting dirty and doing all the things kids are supposed to do on a Saturday afternoon. We'd begun to invite friends um, along to join us and clients and their kids on Saturday. Then eventually it became quite a formalised, structured, 100 of called clients and family, every home game at Sydney University watching um, in those days uh, players who were often wallabies as yeah. well, um, running around. It was a, just a lovely way. It probably developed my interest in uh, not just what sport can do outside of. Um, for people at, you know at, at, off the pitch, if you like, yes. and how it helps develop them. That was really interesting to me. Um, it also developed a, a bit of an interest and in a, in a uh, visibility in how sports were governed and run, and I just observed that over a period of time. And then one day a gentleman by the name of David Clark, who was the um, executive chair of Macquarie Bank and one of the founders, he set up a, uh, a foundation for the rugby club at Sydney Uni and he asked me to join that board. And he was a—he—he a, he since passed away, but he was a, a gentleman and a real renaissance man. You know, he played cricket and rugby for New South Wales. He uh, chaired Opera Australia, chaired the Salvation Army, chaired rugby. He, he was—he's a—he um, was a full-rounded, you know, beautiful gentleman and, but, and, and a man of his generation. And uh, t- said to me one night, "I'm going to ring your secretary and." have her organise a time for me to take you to lunch. I want to speak to you about um, a matter and I want you to come open-minded Josephine. And he was somebody who Tony and I had the greatest respect for and he asked me to join this um, foundation board and he wanted a woman on there and he wanted somebody who could knew a little bit about fundraising. And and he was, even though it was this little board, he was just so generous. We'd meet in the Macquarie Bank boardroom. Um, he'd ring me the night before to make sure there were no questions or issues I had with the board papers. Um, gently guided me without, you know, mm-hmm. ever saying to me he was. The same with Opera, you know, exposed Tony and I to lovely things around Opera, taught me how to, uh, Tony and I had a buy out and what to look for. So um, we've had some incredible people around there and um, just this kind of creeping exposure to sport Mm. in different guises, from my father as a girl to my husband as a player to us as a sponsor. Um, Then all of a sudden um, looking for the gap with the, you know, where are the women? And then off we go and then the more work you do um, trying to correct that, these things come onto people's radars and uh, the foreign minister, Maurice Payne, who you referred to, the the last foreign minister, Reached out to me. This is just a sport piece and asked me to um, chair a new um, advisory council that she uh, was assembling called the Sports Diplomacy Advisory Council within DFAT with the um, view to increase trade and diplomatic relations across the Indo Pacific. And, and she populated that board with amazing athletes, you know, para athletes, um, you know, Anemies, Petra Sivanisiva, Curtis McGrath, um, Gavin Wanganin. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. And she asked me to chair that. Uh, for her, which I did, and it was while I was halfway through that I was tapped to look at the role in Sports Commission. I said no in the first instance because I was really enjoying working for the Foreign Minister. And um, she and I had a quiet chat, and she said, "Oh, I think the boss wants you to look at this other role." <laughs> I went, okay, I get it. So,
0: you told me a um, a beautiful story um, about I think it was a funding request that came through from the CWA that. Um, do you remember you telling me about that, about the football fields?
1: Yeah, there was a, I guess it, that's, you know, what is sport for? Yeah. It's one of those. You know, the question I could keep asking myself, um, I had a very good meeting this morning with the Federal uh, Minister for Finance and and they're staring into a, the Federal Government today is staring into a trillion-dollar deficit and when you sport, like we are, that needs funding badly, um, you have to be sensible and pragmatic, you know. There are also a whole bunch of other things the country needs right now and is sport the most important thing? But if you're clear on what sport is for, it helps some of those discussions. And, um, yes, we had a conversation about a, an organisation that reached out to us at the YWCA and it was in the middle of a drought that we were suffering here in New South Wales. And, of course, in the middle of a drought you're not going to irrigate football fields in a country. And so that wasn't happening. And because they weren't irrigated, the football fields died, so the clubs attached to the football fields weren't opening. And the farmers were struggling because on their watch there was a risk that they could lose the family farm, you know, the first generation to lose it. And a couple of wives and, and women rang to say, look, you know, it would be really terrific if. Uh, you could help us by buying water and help us to irrigate the football fields because if they're irrigated then the football matches will begin again the clubs will open and our men will have somewhere to go on a Saturday because right now um, without anywhere to go to just speak to other people they're taking their lives yeah. now you'd say that's a men's issue and you're a women's organization but the reality is and the women are left run the farms right? on their own without a partner so there is a, an important uh, public discussion to be had around what is sport for, what are the arts for, you know, what are, as, as we work to rebuild the nation post-COVID, what is the role of all of these, um, you know, other parts that make a, a full and rounded civilised society, right? So uh, sport has an important place uh, in that and it is, is certainly community, the community part of it's a piece that I'm really passionate about. What mattered to you when you stepped into that
0: role, into the Sports Commission role?
1: I was speaking to the then Minister for Sport. He was the one speaking to me about the role. And I said no the first time around. And when they came back again and I then sat down and turned my mind to what would what, what I do and what does the Sports Commission do? I know they um, they have the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport, but I didn't really understand the rest of its function, and I didn't understand how the federal government um, went about distributing funds to um, sports. It was also off the back of the sports rorts, the um, the sports infrastructure grants um, issue uh, that the uh, federal government had been dealing with at the time, and I was I had become saddened that everything about the values of sport that I that attracted me to sports and attracted me to athletes and everything that I believe sports meant, I felt like it was being eroded. Mm. And I wanted to see that corrected again because sport brought so much joy to our family, um, even for someone like me who never played sport. Um, I feel part of a community. Tomorrow I'm going to the first match of Sydney University where Tony played and my son played and my father played. Uh, first game of the season, I arrived there and I always feel like I'm back home. You know, it's just beautiful. Where people are tribal, you know, we we like being part of some somewhere to go. And I remember I was speaking on a on a panel last week, and somebody was asking me about sports infrastructure and um you know why is sport important. And, and here in Sydney, um there was a, a rugby league great who played for the South Sydney Rabbitohs, um, who passed away. And the club was in mourning and the club wanted to be together. And it's the Prime Minister Albanese's team, mm. of course. And this is what communities do. And this is what some sports communities do. You know, when we grieve, when we're happy, we all come together. And the Prime Minister was interviewed on it. And, you know, even I would argue that probably most Australians know what rugby league team the Prime Minister supports, right? Now, it's an unusual thing to know, but we all know it, right? Mm. So I, I really. Uh, felt that there needed to be a bit of a reset in how not a bit of a reset a big reset in what sport looked like and how we engaged with the federal government how we engaged with the community where the investment went and I said to to Minister Colbeck I'm also a a little bit concerned about how we fund poorly governed sports and what you think good governance looks like and how we how you satisfy yourself the taxpayers uh, how we satisfy ourselves the taxpayers are happy with who we're funding and why, and I, and I think we need a bit of a reset with transparency and um, if that's something you're minded to let me do as chair, um, I'd be happy to continue a conversation. Mm,
0: fantastic. You obviously have, you know, always been someone who's rolled your sleeves up, got in, looked for ways to solve problems. Um, which is, which is absolutely incredible. I'd love to ask you the best example of leadership you've ever seen.
1: I'll give you a sport when I use it a lot, mainly because people who don't even know Rugby Union possibly have seen it somewhere. Um, Nelson Mandela, Rugby World Cup in South Africa, he had every reason to hate every white Person who had incarcerated him, and he'd come out. He was president, and um, South Africa had got themselves into a the World Cup final. Francois Pienaar was the captain. He put uh, he put on Francois Pienaar's jersey. This is Mandela, uh, you know, a, a Springbok jersey, yes. That had Pienaar's number on the back. Walked into the change room with the team. Pienaar looked up and couldn't believe that you know, Mandela, over his, you know, heart, the the symbol of black oppression, that springbok, they wouldn't let blacks play. I think Chester Williams was the only one that could play. He was wearing it, came in to wish the boys all the best, uh, turned around, walked out, and I've spoken to Francois Pinard about this. He said he walked out and he had my number jersey on his back Mm. and then walked into the stadium with that jersey and the largely white crowd fell into this hushed silence and then erupted into this, you know, cheers and applause. No word about anything other than um, being proud to be South African. Lead. I mean, what leadership? What um, Francois said when he handed him the World Cup and Francois said, you know, me and my family, we were um, conditioned to not, you know, Afrikaans' family, to um, think differently about uh, Blacks. He said, you know, Madiba said to me, I mean, look at this respect. Madiba said to me, son, you know, we need to use this opportunity now to help rebuild our country. Mm-hmm. Um, Mandela's got parents to one of his, one or both of his kids now. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure I've got a better example of that because a man who had every reason, every reason to hate and to, um, you know, use this to grow yeah. and, it's also a great example for us involved in sport as to how sport can help bring a nation together. Now we're not going to stand here today and go, "Look at what great shape South Africa's in." That's kind of what we thats not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how we genuinely put our weapons down and put hate to one side. Mm-hmm. Hate, emotion—it's like you know, drinking poison and hoping you—you you know, your enemy dies. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So we've got to figure out how to um, engage in civil constructive public discourse which we are doing a terrible job of mm. at the moment especially with social media platforms and what's happening and especially uh leaders who are educated and have a platform i probably am the most disappointed if i see them uh you know sort of misstep a bit too often uh, i'll often look back and go you know you know better than that <laughs> you know people who are not educated or don't haven't had the benefits that we have sometimes you know where we been lucky to be to receive a tertiary education, and I only did because I went through when Gough Whitlam had made you know um, tertiary, uh, university degrees free. How lucky was I, right? So, um, when you have that good fortune come your way, you are obliged to use uh, those opportunities and those platforms well.
0: So, Josephine I would love to ask you the question I ask everybody, which is: What does the term brave feminine leadership mean to you? And do you think it needs to change?
1: I've never focused on the feminine part um, because it's not been my focus, and I think that I worry that the more we focus on, on it um, today, we're going to lose sight of what we should be looking at as leaders, which is what are we trying to achieve and where are we going and, and um it's not a term I'd use for me um oh. I, I i and I, I would never identify that as um, as something i i yeah i identify as that said, if you even have a look I'm pretty sure the way I describe myself on my Twitter handle is I'm a wife, I'm a mother, so I describe myself first yes like wife and mother, and they're the most important things to me more than anything else um but they're nothing to do with being feminine or not. Um, they're, I hope, to do with being kind and brave and, and and brave as I try to do the right thing, knowing that I'm not always going to get it right, mm-hmm. but I will always um, have the right intention from my perspective. Um, and sometimes that's hard, the work I'm going to be doing in sport, not everybody's going to like, I'm sure, where it ends up, but I hope the sports sector can look at my time in sport at the end of it whenever that may be and go do you know what i didn't agree with everything she did or you know her leadership there but i understand why she did it well it wasn't for me i kind of get why she did and if i've done that um i hope someone thinks that i was a brave i wouldn't want to be seen as feminine i want to be seen as a brave leader
0: Amazing. I saw, I was lucky enough to see President Obama speak the other night, and he said something that really resonated with me. And it's just reminded me of it and what you've said. And that was as a leader, you don't, it's a bit like a relay race. You don't get to choose, you know, you get the baton handed over. You don't get to choose where you start from. Um, But essentially, as a leader, you're there to do something. Mm, That's right. Yeah. And I can hear that coming through in absolute spades in our conversation. Josephine, it has been incredible having the chance to have this conversation with you. Um, I know that we'll all be watching what you continue to do. You've done so much already, but we'll be continuing to watch what you do. So thank you so much for joining and adding your voice to our conversation.
1: Such a pleasure, Melissa. has been my pleasure.
0: And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second-guessing themselves so that they can maximise their influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.